Hello and welcome to this episode of Self Made. I'm your host, D Brown CEO. Joining me on the show today is Natalie Ballard. Natalie is the Associate Director of Women's Cancers at Merck Pharmaceutical. Natalie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, oh, I'm glad to have you on. Uh, your, your, your bio is so extensive, uh, I don't know where to start, but I, I guess I'm going to do what I always do and just really start at the beginning. So tell me about your, your childhood, you know, where you grew up, and a little bit about your, what your childhood was like. Yeah, so my childhood, I grew up in Fayette, Mississippi, um, which is in Jefferson County, right, at, right outside of Alcorn. Uh, my parents were educators. Um, my mom taught at a school about 30 minutes away from Fayette, which is Franklin County, which was a predominantly white area. Um, and so she thought I would do better at that school. Um, so I grew up going to school with, I was probably one of 10 African-American children at the school. Um, and I think it was a unique experience because I, I lived in a predominantly black town and went to school somewhere else. Yeah. Um, from going to school there, I decided to go to Alcorn State University where my parents met and went to college, um, where I decided to major in chemistry. And from there, I entered a career in science. So just to backtrack just a little bit. So yeah. uh, you went to a predominantly white high school, correct? And so mm -hmm. what was that yes. experience like? That experience was different. Um, I faced a lot of challenges. Um, one of the biggest challenges I had um, during my senior year while I was there, um, there was a petition to where um, some of the people in the town did not want to have two African-American top, uh, st top students, um, salutatorian and valedictorian. Um, and I had to fight to get the number two role um, so I experienced lots of racism when I was there. Um, and I also experienced lots of um, different things as where I was um, able to be on a chess club, do soccer, um, do things that were a little bit outside of my realm that I hadn't been doing at home. Um, I was playing chess at home, but not on a, in a group. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a unique experience for us. So how did the, um, you know, experiencing racism at that age, how did it, how did it impact you? Well, one way it impacted me, I think it strengthened my ability to believe in myself. Um, my parents, um, like I said before, they were educators. My dad was very, um, very uh, um, influenced by the Black Panther movement, by um, the civil rights movement. Um, so he took it upon himself to educate his children on African-American history. So since I knew my history and going to that school, I developed a higher self-esteem. I was able to believe in myself a little bit more as I faced those challenges. Um, and also, I think um, facing those challenges, it kind of strengthened me for the corporate world as well. Yeah. And so uh, you graduated high school. How do you decide to uh, major in chemistry? What kind of piqued your interest <laughs> about that? Yeah, so chemistry. Um, so the other half of my family, um, uh, they're in medicine. And so I think it was somewhat in me. Um, I had my first chemistry set at five years old um, because it wasn't much to do in the town I grew up in. We always were outside playing with something. So I had a chemistry set. I was dissecting frogs and doing experiments outside. So that yeah. was just one of the things that kept me busy. Um, and so I think I had a early education in sciences um, and that's kind of triggered my interest in chemistry. So what made you uh, select Alcorn? I, of course, I, I know it's in your backyard, but uh, why Alcorn? Yeah, so Alcorn was a difficult um, decision. Um, I was going to Spelman until July, right before we started school. Um, Alcorn felt like home. 
when I went there. Um, Everyone knew my family. They knew my parents. And I felt like that I would be nurtured there. I felt like if it was anything that I needed, I could always make a call and people would look out for me or at least challenge me to do better if I was failing at something. Yeah. Um, and yes, it was in my backyard, but I never went home. <laughs> so I how, how, did, how did Alcorn uh, prepare you for a career in, uh, you know, public health? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. So during my time at Alcorn, I was involved in the MARC program, which was back in the early 2000s. It was a program that was um, that was derived to create more minority access to research careers. Um, and that's what MARC stands for. And so the program sent students to different universities every summer to do clinical research or bench work research or work in hospitals. Um, and that was one of the ways I was um, able to access public health, become interested in clinical trials, develop my knowledge in what was going on um, in medicine. And that was a very good program at the time. I think it was, I don't know if it still goes on now, but that was one of the ways that I was interested in it and became interested in it. So you graduate from Alcorn, you start your professional journey. Uh, where did you land at initially once completing college? So initially, once completing college, I went to Duke University, um, where I finished my MPH, um, and I studied epidemiology and clinical trials, um, which is in North Carolina. I have family in North Carolina, and I ended up staying there for a while. Um, I stayed there um, for about four years, um, and then I came back to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, where I fell in love with clinical research and doing creating new drugs and helping people. So what is it about clinical research that you, you, you love so much? Hmm. So what I love so much is providing access to new drugs that people can't normally get. Um, a lot of people in the African-American community try not to do clinical trials because they're so afraid of the testing and the science and the research that's being done. But the benefit of clinical trials is you get new drugs that are very helpful, that are being tested more over than drugs that are currently on the market. So yeah. if you're taking something new, you're gonna be tested more, studied more, followed more by your doctor. Um, and I think it's beneficial. You'll have more oversight and you'll be taken care of better. So I think what drives me and what keeps me in clinical trials is helping people and providing access to my people. So, you know, you, 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 you raise a, a very interesting point uh, myself, when I think about clinical trials, I'm thinking like, uh, I'm, I'm gonna let <laughs> let them figure out and make sure it works first. So, why should a why should a person not really be afraid to be part of a clinical trial? Because as you indicated, uh, they could have access to drugs that could be very helpful that are not on the open market. Yes. Why shouldn't a person be afraid? Is because you're going to be the one that's tested more and you're going to be followed and your doctor's going to make sure that nothing happens to you. Yeah. The reason why that is, is they want that drug to be approved. And if that drug's not approved, the drug companies lose money. Right. So we're going to follow you closely, make sure nothing happens to you. And if anything does happen while you're taking the drug, we'll have the best treatment for you because we want to make sure our drug works. And so the benefit is your doctor is going to be watching you more closely than they are the patient next to you that's not involved in a clinical trial. You'll have more visits, more oversight, more phone calls, more care from the doctor. Now, St. Jude uh, is a children's hospital, right? And so when you were re doing research there, was it more uh, focused on uh, developing drugs for children who have cancer 
So while I was at St. Jude, um, I studied AML, which is acute myeloid leukemia. Um, that's a blood cancer that patients have. Um, I worked on developing drugs for these patients. And during that time, um, there was about a 30% survival rate. Um, once we had the drug and used certain trials, and once we had a few patients on there, we increased the survival rate to about 75%. Um, that drug went on to be approved in, I believe, 2010. Um, and now we are having, we're looking at patients that are living longer with the disease and people are doing better. Okay, so take me from St. Jude's. What word did you go after you left St. Jude? Yeah, so while I was at St. Jude, um, back in the day, they had drug reps that would come to St. Jude and we, they would take us to lunch and take us out and we would talk. So during the time I met a drug rep um, and she asked me, was I interested in working for Big Pharma? And I, I didn't really think about it because I loved my time at St. Jude. It was a great place. Um, but unfortunately, they don't pay that much at St. Jude. And yeah. so I realized that my opportunity to get into Big Pharma presented itself and I took it. And so she asked me to join our team. Um, I went on to Novartis. Novartis is a huge uh, pharmaceutical company that um, makes drugs that are driven towards oncology and lots of other things. Um, I worked in lung cancer when I was there. And from there, I went on to J&J, &J, and that's what brought me to California. Okay. So I've noticed that you've studied, you know, cancer. It seemed like your professional career. Do you have a passion for that a particular area? I, I do. I do. Um, I see, I think I grew up seeing lots of people affected by cancer, different types, breast cancer, lung cancer, um, stomach cancer, lots of things. And it was just so debilitating for the yeah. people around me. And um, I just wanted to help them. And so that's how my interest kind of was sparked um, just by being around people. Um, my grandfather had prostate cancer, but it was later on in life. Um, yeah. And just seeing him go through it, um, it was it was pretty traumatic for us. How, and this is a, just a question I have uh, that I've all, I wonder about all the time, but do you think that uh, are we close to coming up with, with cures for, for cancer? You know, obviously, I, I know there are drugs that are doing some uh, miraculous things. Uh, my mom is a breast cancer survivor, so uh, okay. and she, she was diagnosed at stage four, and uh, she took a, a new drug that had just hit the market maybe two or three months earlier that actually uh, put her cancer into uh, remission. So I'm just curious in terms of the, the research, how do you feel about us ultimately having, you know, cures available? I think there is um, a chance of us finding a cure in the future. Um, we try not to say that word too often because, you know, everybody wants to have a cure. Where we're going in research is individualized research and individualized mm -hmm. medicine. So we're designing new drugs specifically for each patient. So if your mom has a particular type of cancer or I have a particular type of cancer, um, I may get one treatment, she may get another one just because of my body type versus hers or my genetic making versus hers. So I think that's where it's going. Um, you'll hear a lot of people talking about individualized medicine, individualized drugs, immunotherapies. Yeah. Um, I work in immunotherapy where you use your immune cells to treat your own disease. Um, I think that's something that's going forward, and that'll be a cure eventually. Um, but we're getting close. Okay. So uh, talk to me about your role at Merck. Uh, what, what are you doing there as the director of uh, women's cancer? 
Yes. Um, so at Merck, um, I, di- I direct two types of cancers, breast cancers and, and ovarian cancers. Um, right now, I oversee about four studies. Um, these studies are ongoing in the United States and the rest of the world. That includes Europe, Brazil, Australia. Um, we haven't made it to Africa yet, but um, we would like to get on the continent. Um, and basically, I oversee um, those studies to make sure that nothing bad happens with the studies. So my job is to write the protocol um, and to help design the study and how it works. So basically, I see a type of drug. This is how the patient uses that drug. And then we put in how they will last on the study and what will follow on the study. So as an African-American female, uh, what challenges have you uh, faced or what biases have you experienced uh, on your on your path to uh, where you are today? Mm. (laughs) I've experienced a few biases. Um, One of them has been. Um, ageism. Um, People don't really know how old I am, so I'm lucky to have melanin, so (laughs) they can't figure it out. And some people I work with, you know, they they find it difficult to listen to someone who they think is younger, and I may not even be younger than them. So that's one of the biases I have had to speak up more and be more assertive. Um, But then when I become more assertive, we also have another issue that happens. Um, The angry Black woman comes into play Um, and I will tell you that I've had several experiences where people told me that they were afraid of me using those words. And I never thought in a million years that anyone would be afraid of me for asserting myself. Um, that's, that's very difficult to deal with, but I've learned, um, to use my words wisely. Um, I speak up often. I smile a lot. I'm, I'm naturally chipper. So (laughs) I try to come across as approachable and reachable, but those are some of the things that's happened. And also, um, dealing in pharma, it is a male-driven um, industry. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I also have to deal with quite often. I'm usually in the room full of men. Even though I work in breast cancer, lots of the direct directors, the vice presidents, the presidents um, are men. And so um, oftentimes my thoughts or my comments are um, not always heard unless I make a point to have someone listen to me and I speak up. So as a, um, a person that actually, uh, you're responsible for creating drugs that save people lives, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is that empowering to you? I mean, how does that make you feel to know that the work you're doing is so life-changing or life-saving in, in many instances for people? Um, it makes me feel wonderful, um, especially when I see people, like you mentioned your mom. I hope that was one of our drugs that helped your mom out. I don't know if it was, but when I hear stories that a patient took a drug that just came to market and it was on one study that I worked on, uh-huh. it makes you feel like you are actually doing a good job and you're just not working for the grind or working just to get papers to the FDA. Um, these are real people that are taking this medicine, so you have to be reminded of that. And honestly, it's it's quite rewarding. So I'm gonna just backtrack just a little bit and ask you this: Who at Alcorn State University uh, was instrumental in really lighting the fire and helping you uh, get to where you are today? Oh gosh, can I tell you more than one person? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I would say Dr. Clinton Bristow. 
he was the president of Alcorn when I was there. Yeah. Um, I don't know how, but he found out my name and he reached out to me quite often. He would call me on the phone and he would provide me with opportunities um, that he knew about. Um, yeah. And he never let me um, let myself down. Um, he always encouraged me um, to pursue any anything I wanted to do. So I think he was one person. Um, the second person um, was Dr. Troy Stewart. He was my chemistry professor. Um, we did not get along at all. Um, he told me <laughs> he told me I was lazy, <laughs> and he would tell my dad or my uncles um, that I wasn't doing well, even though I was making straight A's. He said I wasn't <laughs> doing good enough, and I wasn't doing enough. And I think him saying that to me pushed me a little harder because I yeah. am a bit. Um, I fight, so I'm gonna always have uh, a rebuttal once someone says something to me. So I think he was number two. And I think the third person um, at Alcorn State was Artie Smith. She was um, one of my mentors when I was there and, and she just helped me along. She she let me know that I could do anything as well. So Yeah, so, you know, Alcorn uh, being an HBCU in a you know rural setting, uh, a lot of people don't know about the institution. So have you, mm-hmm experienced that in your professional life where, you know, when you say I graduated from Alcorn, they're wondering like, okay, where is that at? Yeah, quite often. (laughs) Yeah. And so oftentimes they will say Steve McNair or they'll say a football player or some type of sport. Or once I've heard like Mega Evers, um, like people have said, oh, he went there. Um, but yeah, they, some people have heard of it. Some people haven't. I work with a lot of um, pharmaceutical companies that are in the Northeast. And yeah. so they really don't know a lot right. about HBCUs. And so I have to like kind of pinpoint to where it is. So, um, it's interesting because I like telling people how much I learned there, even though it was in the middle of nowhere and how many opportunities I had there being right. in the middle of nowhere. And so just for my viewers, uh, Tell us how Alcorn prepared you for where you are today. I will say this, and you may not believe me, but I think having lack at Alcorn prepared me for where I am today. Yeah. Um, we didn't always have everything in the chemistry lab. We didn't always have um, the most advanced instruments to use. And that made us hmm. more innovative, more creative, more daring, more looking out for other ways of doing things. And I think that innovation, that innovation mindset, how can I do it this way if I don't have it? I think that's what helped me grow and go so far because I always have to be innovative. I always have to come up with things new. Um, even if I do have it, I still have to come up with different methods of doing things. So, so yes, I think so. But And so I know you're passionate about research and you have a few ventures, right? A couple of research ventures that you are uh, pursuing uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, correct? So, so yes, tell me about those yes. ventures. Oh yes. So um, by the end of the year, we're opening up a small research clinic. Um, one of my uncles is a urologist in Jackson. Um, he works for a small practice that's alongside St. Dominic Hospital. Um, this this new um, clinical research site will focus on urology, so prostate cancer. Um, other issues with urology, and we'll also focus on infectious disease and diabetes for right now. We're just sticking with three things right now. Breast cancer will probably come within the next couple of years. Um, we're going to try to open it up, but we just want to make more drugs available to um, people in the area. So being in public health, 
Uh, what are the biggest challenges and obstacles uh, that, uh, you know, community of color or people that are poor uh, have as it relates to having uh, good health care? I think fear of doctors, fear of um, people in the medical field. Um, those are probably the biggest challenges. And then and then there's access issues. Um, we know, especially in Mississippi and in rural America, um, it's quite it's not as many doctors as I have here in California. Um, so there's access to medical care, adequate medical care. Um, and then there's also, unfortunately, a racism factor that kind of triggers into that. Um, sometimes patients don't feel as comfortable going to all physicians. Um, sometimes we do want to go to physicians that look like us. Um, so I think some of these things are hindrances. Um, but if we open up, you know, more clinics, more area, um, talk about things more, inform people what's out there, I think things will start to change. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I actually heard a story or read a story about, uh, and this hospital is in the Mississippi Delta, uh, but they would amputate uh, the legs and you know limbs of, of African American patients uh, because it was more profitable than uh, treating the patient. And there was a doctor that came in and actually was saying, wait a minute, we don't have to do an amputation. We, I, we can treat this. We can save it. And they wouldn't cooperate. Like they would not give him the necessary access to the, the uh, medicines and, and staff to treat. They wanted to do the amputation. So uh, there's research showed that there's a significant number of uh, African-Americans with diabetes in the you know, rural Mississippi Delta area that uh, have amputations. I think the research that you're doing is, is really uh, is really great, but I would like to know like what what is your inspiration? Like what inspire you to uh, do what you do? Helping people, I enjoy it. Um, I think I've always been taught if I can help, then do so. Um, I think I've been given a gift um, of my mind, and I think my abilities, um, and I don't want to waste them. So that's what drives me. Now, I know you are a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And, I am. <laughs> and so tell me about uh, the AKAs and, and what it means to you and the work that you all do uh, within your communities. Yeah, so I have been in Alpha Kappa Alpha for 20 years now. Um, I joined because my sister had joined and um, all of my uncles are alphas. And I, I loved what the women were doing um, for young girls in my community. Um, we had several debutantes and um, etiquette classes and other things that helped create what was to be an Alpha Kappa Alpha woman. Yeah. Um, and so I really enjoy working with them, especially here in California. We do a lot for the African-American community. I live in Orange County. It's about 2% African-American. <laughs> um, and so we do a lot um, as far as taking girls to different colleges, um, helping them with their etiquette, helping with them learn about STEM. Um, and so I enjoy um, working with them and especially being with my sorority sisters. So at this point in your life, uh, what would you like for your legacy to be? Like, what do you want to, at the end of the day, what do you want to say that you have achieved? Wow. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I would want my legacy to be um, that I helped people live longer. Um, I want it to be that I changed someone's life and I inspired a young girl to become a scientist, um, maybe more than one. 
Um, and also I want my legacy to be um, that you can do anything you put your mind to. And how, how instrumental has your family been in this journey to where you are? Oh gosh, I wouldn't be here without my family. My family, um, like I mentioned earlier, I do have Delta roots and I have roots in North Carolina. I think coming from a family that, um, that has always strived to be educated and always do your best, I think that's something that, that has just really formed me. Um, and I've been able to take that everywhere. They're very supportive. They've never said, Natalie, you can't do that or this or move to California on your own or do anything by yourself. They've always inspired me to be independent and strong and smart um, and respectful. So, so yeah, I couldn't do anything without my family. Well, you know, I would just uh, want to wrap up. Uh, we have about a minute left. If you had to yeah. tell uh, some young person that's looking for a career in public health, uh, you want to give them some advice, what would that be? I would say go to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I would say if you want to go into public health, I think right now um, looking into public health with AI, looking into different trends that are going on right now. Um, and if you want to work for Big Pharma, give me a call. <laughs> I can help. <laughs> good, good deal. Hey, look, Natalie, thank you so much for taking time out your busy schedule to be on the show. I really appreciate yep. you joining me and uh, sharing your story. And to my viewers, I want to thank you for watching this episode of Self Made. I'm your host, D Brown, CEO. And remember, without you, there's no me.